people who are running away and we don't know where are we running to. We are just calling people who are running and then we run. This armed group, they cannot differentiate. I don't know whether they are looking for the armed group soldiers or they are looking for civilians. So we have to hide and then because things get looted and then when people get, you know, get killed and then uh, it was very difficult by that time. So we don't want to leave the patient band even though that we see it's a lot of fire, a lot of bombard, a lot of what, we don't want to leave the patient. So we always take care of patient and one of uh, my colleagues was shot uh, when we worked together in Roti, he was shot and he was shot dead. You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from MSF. On the 9th of July 2021, South Sudan marked the 10th anniversary of its independence. The voices you've just heard are of South Sudanese members of the MSF team recalling what happened when war erupted in their country. In July 2011, after gaining independence from Sudan, South Sudan became the world's newest country. But, less than three years later, the country was plunged into chaos when a power struggle within government turned into a full-blown civil war. South Sudan's resulting five-year conflict led to the deaths of approximately 400,000 people. Many were civilians targeted because of their ethnicity, including children and the elderly. Sexual violence was used as a weapon of war, entire villages were attacked and towns were destroyed. Banned cluster munitions were used in the town of Bor, and child soldiers had been forcibly recruited throughout the country. As well as the conflict between government and opposition forces, intercommunal and interclan conflict has been frequent and fierce. Although a tentative peace deal was signed in 2018, the country remains gripped by insecurity, with many people living without basic necessities like food, water and healthcare. Today, we'll be hearing the personal stories of four of our South Sudanese staff, all of whom now work in the country's largest displacement camp, near the town of Bentiu. Established in 2013, when people fleeing fighting in the surrounding area gathered around a UN checkpoint for security, the camp is now home to over 130,000 people. This episode of Everyday Emergency is dedicated to over 3,000 incredible South Sudanese doctors, nurses, clinical officers, logisticians, IT officers, supervisors, counsellors and many others who are the backbone and lifeblood of our operations in South Sudan. People were running away and we don't know where are we running to. We are just following people who are running and then we run. Elizabeth Nianchao is a maternity supervisor. Originally from Lea, a town around 100 kilometres south of Bentiu, in the north of the country, Elizabeth was studying at the College of Nursing and Midwifery in the capital Juba when conflict first broke out in 2013. After that, when we get, there was a big pan that was made. There was no shelter, there was no water, there was no toilet. And then we stayed there. It was really very cold because it was December. Even we could not get the mattress to lie on. We just lied down on the ground. Without the mattress, without the uh, bed sheet to cover, it was very difficult. There was no food, there was no water, there was no toilet. People are just duplicating everywhere in the compound because there was no toilet. And the movement was very restricted. There's no vehicle who are moving. 
everyone just ran to where they want to get served. After escaping this temporary shelter, Elizabeth was advised to stay in the MSF hospital for protection. Four long days later, the MSF team was able to reach Elizabeth and she and her colleagues were flown back to Leah. When we read there, I was very happy. I was very proud with MSF because she took me back to where my children is. Because my children are really crying all the time. They thought that I was killed in Juba. But when they see me, they were very happy also. And I was very happy to stay with my children. Sadly, within three weeks, the conflict had spread across the country to her hometown. A year later, in 2015, Elizabeth found herself on the run again, this time with her children the youngest of whom was only a month old. Like many of her community, she fled to the grasslands of Unity State, a remote landscape dominated by swamps and rivers, which those escaping hoped would offer some protection from the armed groups. Many people submerged themselves in the water amongst the plants during the day to hide, only coming out under the cover of darkness to try and eat and sleep. So we usually go to the river from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m. also. From there, there's no put be eaten, but water is there because people are just sitting there inside the water. There's no put be eaten. So that later in the evening, around 7, then we'll come and then we can make some food and then we eat. People are not sleeping also at night because we fear that they might come also. Despite her best efforts to hide, Elizabeth suffered several terrifying encounters with armed men who demanded that she cook for them and stole the few belongings she had. And then the most terrifying encounter of all. When we spent nice soldier was coming also because they went and collect the cow from there. They came with their cow and then we sleep in that uh, big house that coal work together with them. They took our toys, they took our clothes, and then we are just staying inside like this one. No one is seeing each other. And then some will say, let us shoot. And then some will say, but there are some children. Some of them say that we can rape. Some say we will not rape. We are really not happy because we thought that they are going to rape us. Even there was uh, my small daughter, and then I called Nyamuj, please, can you come? They asked me, do you want to give us Nyamuj? I told them no. Nyamuj is very little. I told them, no, please don't do it. And then they leave it. That night was like a three night because we wanted to, to be morning, but it was not because we are really struggling until we reach morning. It took Elizabeth and her young family days walking on foot across Unity State to reach the relative safety of what was then known as the Protection of Civilians Camp at Bentiu. Allow us to digress for a minute to paint a picture of the camp. Formerly under the protection of the United Nations, the camp in Bentiu is now controlled by the South Sudanese government. More than 130,000 people, that's similar in size to the city of Gloucester in the UK, live mostly in overcrowded shelters made of metal, mud and plastic, offering little protection from the elements, illness or the violence that often strays into the camps. The poor living conditions and lack of functioning latrines and showers mean there are huge health risks to people living there including diarrheal disease, hepatitis, cholera, typhoid and skin infections. Anyway, back to the MSF team. Elizabeth wasn't the only member of MSF staff who sought protection and refuge in the rivers and waterways of Unity State when fighting broke out. Jeremiah, an HIV TB counsellor, also from Leah, recalls his experience. It is very difficult when we flee out from Leah to the bush, to the islands and then 
and then we stay there for a few months in the island, so we have to, you know, keep hiding ourselves because this armed group, they cannot differentiate. I don't know whether they are looking for the armed group soldiers or they are looking for civilians, so we have to hide and then because things get looted and then when people get, you know, get killed and then uh, it was very difficult by that time. So we have to spend most of our time, you know, in, in, in the water and you have to live in the river. In the morning you go to the river and then you come back. But Jeremiah wasn't just concerned for his own safety. He was also deeply worried about his patients, many of whom had fled to the same area. Jeremiah knew that unless they were able to continue taking their life-saving medication on a regular basis, they would get very sick. Luckily, as he escaped Leah, he'd had the foresight to grab the patient records and as much medication as he could manage and he continued to treat patients in the bush to the best of his abilities. I was still uh, continuing with some patients that ran into the same direction with me because I took some package with me, like ran away back with some medication, you know. And when we are preparing for this crisis, we are like, you know, we have to pl plan for runaway package for this patient because they don't need to stop their treatment. So we plan, but in that time we managed to take care of some patient in the bush. When Jeremiah finally arrived at the camp in Bentiu, his first thought, once again, was his patients. He immediately got in touch with MSF and arranged to make public announcements to encourage them to come to the hospital and restart their treatments. So immediately when I arrived here, we, we announced that in the radio that I'm here, I say my name, you know, stigma with TB and HIV in this community is still very difficult. So these people, these patients, they go to the person that they know. So if they don't know you, it's very difficult for you to, to, to handle them. So when they heard that I'm here, of course, there is a good turn up that they come to the hospital. Then we managed to take them back. Up to now, uh, most of them are still taking the treatment. Up to now, we have a good number of patients that are, we are taking care of. Joshua was working as an operating theatre nurse in Leah when the crisis began. He too was deeply concerned about the fate of his patients. We don't want to leave behind the patient because we are trained that patient is our home. This is whereby we are working for ourselves. So we don't want to leave the patient behind even though that you see there's a lot of fire, a lot of bombard, a lot of what. We don't want to leave the patient. So we always take care of patient. And one of uh, my colleagues was shot uh, when we worked together in OT. He was shot and he was shot dead. So, uh, we, we, we ran, we escaped, and we tried to hire ourselves. They did not find us, because when they find you, nobody leaves you, even though you are health personnel. For us, we even tell them, when they find someone, we tell them, we, 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 are, we are independent, we have no side. We treat everyone. Whether you are black, whether you are white, whether you are white, we are, we are still treating everyone. We are only, our aim is to take care of you guys and the patient we are taking care of. We have no side. So sometimes when somebody listen, they may leave you. Somebody may say, okay, you're still in the truth, please. You cannot, don't hurt him. You always defend yourself, like telling them, please, I have no side. I'm the MSF. MSF is not for everyone. MSF is not for individual. It's for everyone, everyone. Please, leave me. I have to take care of you. I have to take care of whoever is suffering. 
So it's my work, it's my role, I have to do it. Somebody have to listen and when somebody listen, somebody can leave you. In the chaos and confusion of conflict and feeling a strong sense of duty to protect his patients, Joshua became separated from his own wife and children. Because I was, uh, I was separated with my children because of this crisis, I don't know where they are, and we are in the same place in Lyon. They run with their own way, I don't know where I can find them. I'm only taking care of patients, I only concentrate, only taking care of patients. Then when, uh, when I know that the, 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 the situation is normalized, the patient is stabilized, the patient is transported to, to, the, to the location or to other location for the further management, and then I ask for uh, to go to find where I, I can find my children. And then my children, uh, when I had somebody, because there was no communication, when I had somebody, somebody may say that I, I, I see your children in POC, that they went to POC. Yeah, I find my family. Uh, I find them in POC. It was very great. They, they come all the way to my footing, and my wife, my wife was beaten, but was beaten because they they need they, they are demanding for something which my wife don't have because they, they have taken everything they grab everything maybe they, they demand something from me that uh, I need this and if I don't have it I have to I have to I have to I have to, I have to suffer yeah until I find they beat my wife but when I find my wife was okay in the panic of the war becoming separated from family members was not unusual. Leek Gatdiet Riak, a medical data processing officer, was only 18 when fighting broke out in his hometown. When he found himself alone, separated from family and friends, he had to make a very difficult decision. Uh, in the first place, it was really scary, you know, because I've never been to military before. I've never do all those stuff because my father was a soldier before he married my, my, I think that was a long time ago, because my father is a soldier before she married my mother. Then, but she normally used to keep me at the school. Yeah, and then I've never been to military, uh, uh, like doing some, you know, all those stuff that the military are doing. I never knew that. But in the first time when I joined military, because there was no choice. You know, uh, it was really scary. Yeah. But when I take like someone together with them, I thought that there's no me unless you protect yourself. Yeah, that's why I stay. The scariest thing in that period was because that time there was no gun for you to go to fight. Uh, that was the the challenge. If you are just a civilian and you join the military. Uh, then you stay in the middle of front line with no gun. With really shelling, you know. That was the, the baddest things I experienced in my life. You know, going to war with no gun is very shelling. Unless you share one gun with your friends. Yeah, and then if you went to commander, and then you can tell you that, okay, let's wait for the war to, to
we have in. If we succeed and then we capture some gun, then we are going to give you. Yeah. But if you scare, they will not give you any gun. That was the challenge. Then they told you, if you need gun, then you need to join the, you know, the prone line. Then you go with no gun. That's where after war, if you capture some gun, that's where you are going to get. Leek finally managed to get hold of a gun and the fighting continued. But after a particularly violent battle that lasted for two days, in which all the buildings were burnt and many people killed, Leek decided he had to escape. With the help of friends, he fled under the cover of darkness and walked for two days to reach his hometown. But when he arrived, he heard the devastating news that his father, who was also in the military, had been shot and injured. Leek was desperate to find him and had no choice but to rejoin the army in an attempt to track him down. But unfortunately, before long, he fell ill. One day I fall sick and was really severe. Then there is no means to get medication. There is no medication. And then even the food, it's hard to find food. People used to go and grab, you know, some property from the normal civilian. You went and grabs, goat, chicken, even some plants. Then you went and takes by force. That's the means to survive. Then from there, I was really six, really severe. Then one of my friends told me that you need to go to Unimis. UNMIS, or the United Nations Mission in South Sudan, was what the Bentiu camp was known as among the communities in the area at the time. It was also referred to as the POC, which stands for Protection of Civilian Site, under UN terminology. Then on the way, I managed to, to come to POC. Then there was a long process even for me to get here. Yeah. Then when I came here at that time, I was six. Then I went to MSF. Then they treat me, there was malaria. Yeah, then they treat me with malaria. Then I was well again. Then I decided to stay in POC. That were the best things for me. Leek has been living and working in Bentu now for years. And although it's still safer than life outside the camp, he says it's still not a secure place to live. POC is not safe place for me to stay. Uh, because there is a lot of issues in POC, within POC as well, because it's not a good place for me to stay. And for someone desperate to continue studying IT, the lack of education available to residents of the camp is a huge disadvantage. A lot of people are stuck now, you know, because they have no way to continue their study. And then it's very challenging, because like, uh, a lot of kids, they, they, they even deserve to, to continue their school, but it's quite difficult like in POC because uh, like joining university, you know, you cannot afford to go to college by yourself. Yeah, it's very challenging. That's why even we are still in POC. Yeah. Only education could, be, could change this problem in South Sudan. For now, the residents of Bentiu Camp remain in a kind of suspended existence, unable to leave and unable to move on. And through all of their struggles, from the terror of the conflict to the day-to-day challenges of living in the camp, their longing for home is never far away. Yeah, it was actually good in that time, because uh, before the crisis, you know, 
good. Uh, it's really stable and it's nice even because uh, that is a good school and also there are some good playground for kids to play football, volleyball, all those sports. Yeah, uh, then I love it. Yeah, that's where I, uh, you know, spend my time with, uh, with the plane I grew up and with the rest of my family as well. Yeah, it's a good place. A lot of my friends, most of them are scattered away. Some were injured, others were harmed and killed. And then some of them end up in military. Yeah, you know, and then like some sister, you know, peer group and all those things. Like, because there were a lot of things that were happening. Riffing, kidnapping, everything. For MSF, the painful reality and tragic legacy of South Sudan's conflicts are the tens of thousands of our patients affected by violence. 24 of our South Sudanese colleagues have been killed since the country gained independence. Despite the peace agreement in 2018 and a unified South Sudanese government since 2020, today's situation remains fragile. Violence and fighting continue throughout the country. And while the situation is no longer escalating rapidly at levels seen during the civil war, South Sudan remains in the grip of a serious and prolonged humanitarian crisis. The future for Elizabeth, Jeremiah, Joshua and Leek and the whole of South Sudan remains hanging in the balance. Stuck in a delicate place between a tentative peace and ongoing insecurities, all many can do is hope and pray for a better future. My whole object, you know, just if the South Sudan has peace, that is the, the only good thing. But uh, like the situation we are now, uh, it's quite difficult, you know, to imagine because there is a lot of issues that need to be fixed. And then the only thing that we are expecting is peace. Yeah, if there is a peace, then there is a solution for everything. And then if there is no peace, then I don't think nothing will be fixed. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast. <laughs>